Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Alana's in a second trimester Stressed out cause I'm gone, she acting all extra But happy cause she knows it's a girl But we're doubtful if we should bring another one in the world Makes you sent with you and the kids at the bomb I'm keeping all my photos in a 23rd song My best friend Amani lost her arm at the border Just trying to restore a little peace in order And it's strange when she reads the Quran Torn between what side she needs to be on Haven't slept for days, I squeeze my scene Cause no man's eye should see what I've seen Soldiers lost their mind, robbing, pillaging Tomahawk missiles hit civilian villages And they ease the pain with narcotics I'm scared but I'm trying to remain patriotic My father, father Forgive us cause we know not what we're doing So we're here today to uh, talk about a remarkable book, about a remarkable story, some of which takes place not too far from where I'm sitting, and some of which takes place, yes, in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, It's a story of the struggle to do something about high-volume blood loss from trauma, either in military attacks or uh, car accidents, explosions, mass shootings. Um, And it's also the story... Uh, of people who, well, actually, uh, the book is called, I should say, In the Blood. It's written by my friend Charles Barber, who I've known for about 20 years now, uh, How Two Outsiders Solved a Centuries-Old Medical Mystery and Took on the U.S. Army. Uh, They got a very nice notice, Charlie did, actually, uh, in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend, which I think, you know, part of it, uh, I think, describes it pretty well. It's it's the story of a, a product called Quick Clot. Uh, so compellingly recounted by Mr. Barber, offers critical lessons about medical innovation, the importance of recognizing insights from non-traditional sources, the value of tinkering, the dismaying lengths to which incumbents often go to defend their turf, the fact that certitude, vital in some circumstances, can be detrimental in others. So um, I think that really sums it up really well. And it's a page turner. Uh, This is a very exciting book to read. So uh, Charlie Barber, first of all, welcome back to our show. Thanks so much, Colin. Great to be here. And, you know, maybe, I mean, the thing that just, every time I talk to somebody about this book, and by the way, I sold a copy of your book this morning. Thank uh, you. I'm not even looking for a commission, but uh, somewhat in the strength of the Wall Street Journal Review, but a friend of mine, uh, John Capetta in Pennsylvania, uh, codenamed The Professor, uh, said he's picked up the book a couple of times in bookstores and and then put it back down, wasn't sure whether to buy it, and based on what I told him, he's going to buy it. So, good. Um, so, um, but when I talk to people about this, one thing I say is that a point that you make in the book very early on is that the treatment of high-volume blood loss on the battlefield hasn't didn't change much from the Trojan War to the world wars of the 20th century. To me, that's just a mind-boggling idea. It is mind-boggling. And of course, I learned all of this because I didn't particularly know much about it. And Bart Gulong, who will be with us shortly, who was instrumental in the creation, first told me this, and then I researched it. Um, So we're literally going back to the Trojan War up until the Iraq War, so including Vietnam. Essentially, the treatments for traumatic bleeding were just the same, gauze and pressure. And the Black Hawk Down tragedy of the Battle of Mogadishu in which um, soldiers 
infamously bled out and then it was uh, publicized on screen in the, in the well-known movie, really put a huge pressure on the military to find a solution to stanch bleeding. And it had essentially been a millennia, not just centuries, but millennia-old medical mystery. Yeah, one thing I read about, kind of a parallel product a little bit. I don't know, Bart might even know about this product, uh, to to the one that you've chronicled so excitingly here, which is sometimes called, called the Israeli bandage. But the guy who invented that was a medic in the Israeli army and going through medic training in 1984. And he was, first of all, handed packets of gauze for bleeding situations and noticed that they were from 1946. Uh, and then... <laughs> This is apparently not made up. The, the the trainers told him, look, if that doesn't work, just grab a nearby rock and press it to the wound. That was their idea in 1984 uh, that you were going to use a piece of rock to press it to the wound. But yes, I, I think 1993 in Mogadishu somehow or other is a turning point in attitudes. It's a motivator to one of the characters in your book. And it also, I think, through the medium of popular culture, reaches the world in a way that, that these kinds of stories typically don't do. You mentioned the movie Black, um, Black Hawk Down. We're going to play a little uh, clip from the movie. This is, uh, this is probably the key to the whole thing. Uh, a character, a real-life person named Jamie Smith, a soldier named Jamie Smith, is bleeding out. Uh, here he is. Uh, this is a one gene played by Charlie Hoffheimer. Do me a favor. Yeah. You tell my parents that I fought well today. That I, that I, that I fought hard. You're gonna tell them yourself, okay? You hear me? All right. The Humvees here. They're coming, Jenny. They're coming. You just gotta hang in there a little bit. Can you hold on for just a little bit? You can I do can. that. I can't. It's nothing. It's nothing. It's nothing. It's nothing. It's nothing. There is a way, Charlie, that popular culture sometimes galvanizes sentiment in a way that just pure history or journalistic reportage wouldn't, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and this this seems to have done it, um, or or at least helped to do it. But I think also, you know, you quote um, uh, Dr. Mayo, the the founder of the Mayo Clinic, uh, in, in this book, Dr. William Mayo, who said that uh, medicine is the only victor of war, in the sense that a lot of medical innovation does come out uh, of war. But I don't know. Reading the book, I thought, first of all, generally not enough. You know, I mean, an eight hundred and fifty billion dollar Department of Defense budget. It just doesn't, I think, it just seems like so much of that goes into breaking and killing. And and the idea that, you know, it took until 1993 to really sort of, you know, create a large-scale effort like this, I don't know. It just raises some real questions about priorities. Absolutely. And by the way, Bart does know about the Israeli advantage. Um, So... And it wasn't even solved by the military with all ultimately with all of these resources. And so the story of the book is these two guys down the road from where we're speaking now in New Britain and Newington were using a simple mineral called zeolite. It looks like kitty litter. And they were using it to separate gases for oxygen generating machines. And Frank, who will be with us shortly, had the seismic idea of thinking that 
if it's if this simple cheap mineral strip mine from Georgia could separate gases, maybe it would separate things in blood. And his concept with no medical training was that it would absorb the water and blood and keep the platelets and the clotting factors. It was a, you know, seismic paradigm shifting idea that he kept essentially to himself for 20 years. And meanwhile, the military provoked by Black Hawk Down ultimately spends up to a quarter of a billion dollars searching for high-tech blood clotting solutions, but they do it the exact opposite solution. They do it by adding high-tech stuff rather than taking something away. And so it's the simple, what's right in front of you, the, the value of the outsiders, the value of actually not even having medical training, because what Frank took a product he was using in his machines and put it into the body. Had he been an MD, he probably would have lost his license. Right. I think the Wall Street Journal Review uh, compared it to, um, I think his name is John Harrison. He's a clockmaker in the 18th century who solves the longitude problem, a problem that just involved, that thwarted efforts at, at more precise navigation. And all kinds of really fancy scientific people <laughs> tackled it, and he figured out a way to deal with it. And, and there is that sense, right, that... You know, one sense that I got reading your book is the best way to get a major military contract contract for biomedical stuff is to have already gotten one. That if you're networked, if you're already in there, if you know the names of decision makers, you have a tremendous advantage over, to use the word on the cover of your book, outsiders. Absolutely. And a lot of the people pursuing the high-tech blood clotting stuff, which all failed, and this one is the last one standing as we speak now. It's in every first aid kit of every soldier and Marine. Uh, a lot of them are former Army people who form their own companies. So you've got the good old boy network and the cozy relationships. And a Marine um, Navy corpsman who was working for the Marines, who was one of the people at Quantico, actually, who, who vouched for this product and led the testing on it, Quicklot, the local product, he said that Bard and Frank and their team, because it's not just them, uh, because the company grew once it got traction with the, with the military, were the one in 10,000 of the, of the contractors who got through the eye of the needle. And I think it was a particular um, combination of, of determination and desperation. Well, it's it, the thing that's mind-boggling, one of the many things that are mind-boggling uh, in a very unpleasant way reading the book is when they started testing these products, they had this kind of, you know, push to try to develop something better than what they had. And so you got all these contractors bringing in products and 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 the, your two protagonists are added almost as kind of an afterthought. And there's like, you know, in terms of the trials, they're, they're the people nobody knows. Nobody knows anything about the product. And they don't know anybody, and they don't even know really how to pitch something, uh, and which all, I think, to a certain degree, works to their favor. Except that everything else, all these other products, fail at a certain significant rate. Some of them fail kind of spectacularly, um, you know, have like 60% failure rates or something. And this is 100% successful. I mean, on pigs in a controlled setting, but 100% successful in, in creating this high-speed clotting ability. And that, although it really helps them with the Navy and the Marines, it isn't really dispositive. Like the Army looks at all these numbers and goes, well, yeah, I think we might go with the other one. That didn't work as well and costs a lot more. And it, that company was run by people that had been ex-Army. And it, I think it worked terrifically 
in the lab under even more controlled situations. In other words, it's the difference between theory and practice. If it was a that product we're talking about that failed and went bankrupt, but was the opposing product favored by the army, as you say, was like a rigid, it was like a trisket, it was a rigid bandage. And unless the wound was sort of that shape and flat, it didn't work. So I think one of the, the, the lessons, I hate to be didactic, but I think one of the lessons of this is practice versus theory. So there's no doubt that a couple of the agents that the, the army favored and opposed opposing quick clot could clot, clot blood, but only under you know very specific circumstances, not necessarily with an IED just went off. And also a second product they used later carried risks of heart attacks and strokes. Meanwhile, you've got these two guys that are building machines in Newington and they know what works in the field, and then it's adopted by the Marines and the two, three people that that fought for it at great peril to their own reputation in, in the Marines and the Navy were ex-combat people. So they didn't give a, a darn about, you know, the, the, the science. They just cared that it worked in the field. And that's what that's how it got through the eye of the needle. Yeah, and I I want to say this. We'll go to a break pretty soon because we want to, we want to bring your two protagonists, uh, Bart and Frank, in, into this conversation. But um, th- one of the most interesting figures in the book to me is a um, is a medical officer uh, named uh, Tim Coakley, and so Coakley. Uh, gets his hands on this product, which is called Quick Clot at the time, and he's out in the field and he uses it once really, really successfully. And then he uses it again. I, I have to say, Charlie, some of the scenes in this book are very pulse quickening. And so there's been an IED explosion. And one thing that I hadn't understood about IEDs until I read your book is that there's like the first wave that throws a lot of shrapnel at you. And then there's like a second sort of thermal or, or, or air shock wave that can just tear your arm right off your body. And, and so he's your Tim Coakley sees this Iraqi guy who's down, uh, and it, part of his back, I guess, is blown up. I yep. should let you take over the story from there. Yeah, so it's hurricane force winds and the subsequent blast waves. In other words, after the shrapnel's gone, it's the the vacuum created force. So Tim Coakley, who's one of the heroes of the book, uh, he, as you said, he's a doctor and working for the Navy, and he's in Iraq in in o two o three, and. A, the first scene is a Marine is shot in the neck, and he, he the guy's bleeding out, and it's in the middle of the desert, and who knows when the ambulance is going to arrive. So Tim, who's he's a friend now, grabs Quick Clot that he basically knows nothing about. He just heard about in a training before he left, and he's very suspicious of anything that the military develops. It's now endorsed by the, the Marines and the Navy. He doesn't think it's going to work. He applies it to the guy's neck, and he survives. So he's like, oh, wow, his, his exact language is, I can't believe the, the military found something that worked, is, is what he told me many times. So, but, you know, anything can work once, especially in combat. So then a, a few weeks later, he, he's in Baghdad and an Iraqi man is hit by these subsequent blast waves that you're talking about. The flesh of his back is just literally lifted off. And I had to interview Tim 40 times to kind of really realize this. He applies quick clot again, and the guys, it stops the bleeding. It turns blood, it's sort of into jello. Um, it literally takes the water and keeps the other stuff. And then he's like, oh, okay, you know, it worked twice. So then he comes back after long times in combat, and for which he paid a price, comes back to the States and becomes the Johnny Appleseed of quick clot, but 
is 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 fought back against by the army. Yeah, there's this incredible scene uh, done in Florida, I think at a place called Trade Winds, where he just you know gets up to the mic the way he's supposed to, up to the podium, and he explains all this stuff. And it turns out there's this cadre of people associated with the co- the comp- competing product, the less effective, more expensive product, Hemcon, and just army people. I mean, there really is sort of a line being drawn between the branches of service here and quite a bit of rivalry around this stuff. And they just attack him. They attack him, you know, verbally while he's there. And they kind of trail him around at this conference trying to intimidate him. And they're really angry at him for telling these very, very dramatic and and obviously very persuasive stories. And he expected it would be a victory tour for him. And... It's, again, the underdogs and the outsiders. It's really a team. It's, it's Bart and Frank, but then these, these folks in, in the military, that are, they all share an outsider status. So, so Tim was not a researcher. He, he was a late bloomer. He went to community college. He was a medic before he went to medical school. He got his medical degree, I think, at age 40. He's not a researcher, but he comes back from Iraq. He's one of the first people in Iraq. He sets up the medical supply chain from Kuwait to Baghdad. He's one of the ran what's called a shock trauma platoon, and um, he just comes and tells his story. I, I, I and he used it on other people after those first two signature moments, and is essentially shouted down. Right, and and it gets worse for him later. He's. And this will be great in the movie. There's definitely going to be a movie about this. But um, And everybody in the movie would be played by either Matt Damon or Ben Affleck. They'll just play all the different parts. <laughs> but um, uh, there's a scene later where he just really is kind of being persecuted, it seems, uh, and, and maybe driven out of the Navy by people who are doing stuff like erasing his emails. <laughs> and it gets very, very paranoid. And you, you get the feeling that at times people pay a pretty high price just for telling the truth about something like this. They do. All right, let's take a break because we want you to meet uh, the two big stars here. Uh, They are ready to go. Uh, And we'll take a break. We'll come back with more of Charles Barber and In the Blood, how two outsiders solved a centuries-old medical mystery and took on the U.S. Army. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health.
All right, we are back. We are back talking about the book In the Blood by Charles Barber, how two outsiders solved a centuries-old medical mystery and took on the U.S. Army. Joining us now are those two outsiders. Frank Hershey uh, is the founder of Onsite Gas, uh, the co-founder of Z Medica and the inventor of Quick Clot. Uh, and Bart Gulong uh, is the co-founder and former CEO of Z Medica, who worked to get Quick Clot widely adopted. Uh, and uh, I will look some little announcements here. No, they're big announcements. So there's a bit butch, uh, there's a book launch celebrating Frank Hershey uh, and his invention at the University of Hartford. All three of our guests are going to be there. It's on June 1st, which I'm pretty sure is Thursday. Uh, in Fra- it'll be in Frank's honor. Uh, he's actually been a very, very generous donor to the University of Hartford. Maybe we'll have time to talk about that. Uh, and uh, then Charles Barber will be at the Yale Bookstore on June 3rd, which I think by... By deduction, I think is Saturday at 2 p.m. So um, very exciting to have both of you here. And and Frank Hershey, I'm going to start with you. We should just I just one of these weird little coincidences. Apparently, my my mother worked for you at some point. Ah, uh, yeah, at Hartford Hospital. Um, she was a uh, secretary, mm-hmm. and um, I knew her for, for a couple years anyway. But what was interesting was every day we got an upgrade on uh, what what you were doing at Yale University. <laughs> I'm sure you did. Uh, upgrade meaning uh, earful, I think, is the term you're really looking for. All right. So, uh, you know, this whole story begins kind of what with what I would call, based on Charlie's book, almost kind of a thing that you intuited. I mean, you were working with this, this <clears throat> material called zeolite. You were using it for other stuff. Yes. And somehow or yes. other, you just suddenly thought, what if it could help with blood clotting? Can you Say a little bit more about the Eureka moment there. Yeah, the uh, what it was, Colin. I've always been a very curious fellow, and uh, I just had this idea that maybe uh, it would stop bleeding. So, uh, in order to prove it, I, uh, I tested it here in West Hartford, uh, down cellar. <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, I had bought a uh, a mouse that you would feed a snake, and I uh, I cut him. Put the zeolite on this on the uh, on the mouse, and the bleeding stopped almost instantly. That was the eureka moment. Yes, but but first of all, we should say the mouse is not coming to the uh, event on Thursday. But, but the mouse uh, did survive. The mouse did survive, and and I think is living in Dennis, Massachusetts, in in, in <laughs> one of Frank's properties now. But uh, no, no, I guess I'm just sort of saying, and you probably get asked this a lot. And my guess is it's a really hard question to to answer but you just told me how you proved your theory but i don't know do you have any sort of sense of how the the first inkling came like the what if thing came into your head no i it, it didn't happen that way uh again i remember being in the shop uh where guys would sometimes cut themselves and and for some reason they would put it on on their wound and claim that it you know stopped bleeding so 
I just carried it a bit further and and, and proved it. <clears throat> okay. Um, so, um, but, but Colin, he yeah. also went to the University of Hartford and studied zeolite. Yeah. And it's used as an absorbent and as a sieve, like mm-hmm. in athletic shoes, to take away odor. Right. And so, the one thing all of those uses had in common is it sucks stuff in. So, um, I want to add Bart to the conversation. Uh, I feel. Having read the book, like I know you, Bart, <laughs> when, when in fact I don't. Uh, but um, there's a way in which, I mean, we should also say that Frank and his company were making other kinds of things that had nothing to do with blood clotting, but something to do really with this whole way of thinking. You're the kind of the guy who comes in and finds a way to tell the story of this equipment in a way that makes people want to get it, adopt it, buy it, believe in it. But I, I wonder if, you know, all the experiences that Charlie details in the book, I wonder if it ever seemed to you like zeolite was just so simple. It was such a simple thing uh, with not, not a lot of bells and whistles that it made it hard to get certain kinds of people to trust it. You, you know what I'm saying? Colin, I'm a great believer in the circular aspect of so much in life. Mm-hmm. And Frank, although he would never admit it, is a brilliant man. And in his brilliance, true brilliance brings complexity back to simplicity. Mm -hmm. And that's what Frank could do with almost anything. And I would would marvel at the things, the logical statements that he would make. Uh, He's kind of the little kid who said the emperor is naked uh, (laughs) about everything. And... uh, it was incredibly interesting to follow him, be part of the process, and uh, and push the product. Although it became it became after a while both a blessing and a curse because once we understood what the capabilities of the product were, our mission was obvious. Our mission was that this product has to get into the hands of anyone who needs it in the world, and with the battles that we had to fight it would have been very easy to say okay we'll let this we'll just let it go we're doing fine with our oxygen and nitrogen generators we're making a living let it go but frank is also a very religious person and i'm a fairly spiritual person and uh i guess spiritual means i was i'm a classic hippie from the 60s one of the things i did in the 60s was swear to myself that i'd never lose my desire to do something good for humanity and quick lot was it and it wasn't just a mission for us what it became was it was impossible to fail because to let quick lot fail would be in effect to be responsible for the deaths of so many people after we're gone but Bart it does and, it does uh, seem like you know that it, it is it, reading the book it seems like kind of from almost the moment the, the, the capacities uh, of zeolite and quick clot were discovered. It should have been a pretty easy glide path to its introduction. And yet, to use Charlie's phrase, it is a series of, of needles that have to be threaded. And, and one senses all the way through the book that there are just these junctures where it, it seems as though you're just you're not going to get there that, that for reasons that have nothing to do with the efficacy of the product or the science behind it, you're not going to get there. And I don't know, what did you learn about big military purchasing systems as a result of what you went through? 
big military purchasing systems, just like all very large corporations, uh, claim that they're agents of change. In fact, they've gotten to a point where they almost control all change in this country, whether it's medical, electronic, or military. And by controlling change, they, they claim to be agents of change, but they're agents of change only if that change benefits them, benefits their shareholders, and brings them, brings them cash. And there's really no room, it seems, anymore for someone who's, who's pure of desire. All we wanted to do was save lives. And that completely overcame uh, any impediments that might be in our way. But we learned very, very early on that being the little guy, it's very easy for the big guy to say, you know nothing by nature of the fact that I'm a big guy and you're a little guy. Yeah. So, Charlie, I, I, you know, maybe you want to also weigh in a little bit about this, because one thing that you did, obviously, is this is a really in-depth study of the process that they went through. I mean, were there certain other insights that you came away with that you didn't have going in about how this process works? Well, one thing that the Bart and Frank were are very proud of is that this is all self-funded. Mm-hmm. You know, they I think at one point they at well along, you know, 3 years after the the uh, adoption by by the Marines and the Navy, they I think they got a two hundred thousand dollar grant that they ended up returning. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, the other products, um, the, the first one that w- was so rigid it didn't really work. Uh, the military put the the Army put seventy million dollars and taxpayers put in seventy million dollars, and then a drug that was later used that had carried the risks of heart attacks and strokes was made by a huge pharmaceutical company and cost five to $10,000 a dose. So it just the money aspect of it, it's sort of like, you know, running for president if you don't have money. Um, and so what Bart had had a long experience as an entrepreneur and he'd had successes and he'd had failures. And I think he'd be the first that he learned from those failures. And when he knew he had the product and the unassailable efficacy, as you mentioned, but then the resistance, he basically undertook a guerrilla marketing campaign. <laughs> and he had there's a there was a famous book from the, I think the 70s or 80s called Guerrilla Marketing. He studied that like a Bible. And his there, as you say, there are these moments of change and insight. They were blocked by official army medicine. But what he did, and I'll turn it over to him in a second, is he went to the end user. He went to the soldiers. And that was one of those moments. And it, so it became, instead of top down, it became bottom up as far as the Army's concerned. Yeah, Bart, did you want to say something more about that? Yeah, well, every unit, every unit had a credit card that had, I believe, an $1,800 limit. And we at first thought this would be very easy we'll just mark it to the to the top brass and then it'll sprinkle on down to the uh to the soldiers it turns out that didn't work but we started going to the soldiers we went to the units we talked to the units we talked to the divisional surgeons we uh we complimented what was going on in the field because the british were using our product and other people were using our product in the field and it got to the point that our own soldiers were trading bottles of scotch for quicklot from the British. Uh, wives and mothers were raising money to buy quicklot to send to their kids. Mm. Uh, 
the soldiers, the small units themselves, were using the credit cards to buy Quickflot. So it, this this all became kind of a, a snowball that eventually rolled over the yeah. entire upper military. And I should also say that we had a tremendous team of employees who fully understood what they were doing. And so, we used to say every day, nobody's going to stop us because like the, like the Blues Brothers, we're on a mission from God. <laughs> so, Frank, I, I want to ask you about two things. One of them is, you know, if there was any kind of knock against the original product, the original concept, the zeolite, it was that as it was doing this miraculous job, and, and miraculous was a term that people used, I mean, quite seriously, as it was doing this miraculous job, the area that it was in would start to heat up, heat up maybe to the temperature of really hot tap water. Uh, and some of the people who were trying to suppress the use of the product in favor of something else used that and maybe even simulated some tests that weren't entirely fair where the wound got even hotter. But that ultimately was a problem that you had to solve or you felt you had to solve, even though you were already you were finally breaking through. So can you say a little bit about that? Uh, about well, This is another thing you had to think through. The, um, the the original zeolite did generate heat, and I actually thought it might even cauterize as part of the uh, stopping the bleeding, but it turned out it it was it wasn't really cauterizing. It was the other factors. So there was another product that I had mentioned in my original patent, um, a clay substance called kaolin, and it worked just as good as quick clot as uh, zeolite, and uh, it did not generate the heat. It also was very easy to impregnate on gauze, so that became uh, what we now call combat gauze. Mm-hmm. Yes. And let me just add to Bart, uh, Bart's a marketing genius. I saw it first with the uh, generators, uh, what he did with, for the company. It was just unbelievable. And when I, we got going with Quicklaw, I knew without any question he would, he would uh, be successful at it. But it wasn't easy. So, Frank, the other thing I wanted to ask you, I think particularly also, yeah. you're a very devout Catholic. Uh, you're somebody, your religious faith is something that Charlie writes about quite uh-huh. a bit. What's it like now? This is a situation where, yeah, I mean, soldiers just have combat gauze, which is your product, you know, in their, in their kits when they go out into the field. Police have it. It's used at mass shootings. Colin, it was used yesterday at the Hollywood. I, I was wondering about yeah. yesterday at, at yeah. the Hollywood <laughs> Broadwalk in, in Miami. Yeah. And I mean, really, the ultimate test of anything is does Taylor Swift use it? Well, yes, she does. She she has <laughs> she has quick clot or, or combat gauze with her. Um, I don't know. How does that feel? I, I'm not really asking you to think. I'm asking you to feel. How, how does it feel to know all of that? It was it's, it's sort of uh, surreal, to be honest with you, um, to have it come so far so quickly. And uh, I think the ultimate goal, as Bart said, is to get it into everybody's hands so we can have it all over the world. Yeah, I think you're getting closer. I will say that um, while I was preparing for this show, um, I, I subscribed to something called Wirecutter, which is the New York Times-sponsored kind of their version of Consumer Reports. Uh, and and I get emails anytime they have a new thing, and I get this thing that said five products you should add to your first aid kit. And I I reflexively open anything from Wirecutter anyway. I'm <laughs> going through it, and damned if combat gauze is not one of those products. Uh, it tells you how to buy it, where to get it. You know, you got to have it. So I definitely feel like you guys have. Uh, have really broken through. And I guess, 
you know, Bart, that may be a question worth asking too. Like I, I, because so, <laughs> I'm a fanboy now, I ordered some quick clock from Amazon, uh, <laughs> a, along with the Israeli bandage, which you guys have nothing to do with. But I'm getting really curious about all this stuff. But I guess, I mean, is that true? I mean, does the can the average person just living at home who's not a first responder or a member of the armed services is it is quick clot usable enough in just common situations so that maybe people should have it? Absolutely, 100%. In fact, it's uh, I keep it in my car. I uh, I give it to friends as long as I as long as I have. I'll continue to make sure that uh, all of my loved ones has it with them at all times because it is the easiest thing in the world to apply. Yeah. You open the package, you take the gauze, you stuff it into the wound, and the Israeli bandage, by the way, is complementary. Yes. To quick clot, it's actually a pressure bandage. Yeah. That that is elastic and applies its own pressure. So when you have those two items, you're you're not bulletproof, but you're certainly death proof. Let's right. put it that way. So supposedly, but I just want to I yeah, just want to yeah. mention one thing sure. in terms of if I if I can about about understanding the impact of what we do. When we used to uh, we used to go to shows and to medical conventions. And we'd go out to dinner with the staff, and we had kind of a standard, we had a standard toast. And that toast would be, among the entire staff, here's to all the people whose lives we'll save who will never know our names. And I, I and think there's, there's, there's a beautiful scene in the book, uh, Bart, one of my favorite scenes in the book, and it's a, during a time in your life when you're a little bit depressed for just reasons having nothing to do with quick clot and going through just a bad patch emotionally. And some guy pulls up to you, up to your SUV in his car. It's, I think it's an older guy. And he looks at your vanity license plate that says something as a shortened version of quick clot. And he asks if you have anything to do with it. And what did he say? He said something like, that thing saved my son's life and then just sped that, away? That stuff, my my son's deployed, that that stuff saved his life. God bless you. And he drove off. You know, if that, it happened, was, that, was, that happened once, it would be the greatest moment in most people's lives. For you guys, it happens thousands and thousands of times with people you, you probably don't know. Uh, all right, we're going to take a little break here. We're going to talk to more of these uh, three exciting gentlemen uh, when we come back. And it's time to say some thank yous. First of all, uh, in the absence of Cat Pastor, we have the fifth element, the supreme being. Gene Amatruda is our technical producer today. Uh, he actually is the technical producer, technically, of everything. Of, like your entire life is probably being technically produced by Eugene Amatruda. Uh, and our senior producer, Lily Tyson, is the producer of this episode. Uh, and I'm very excited to have with me these three very uh, wonderful guests. Charlie Barber, whom I've known a long time, nonfiction writer, uh, and his new book is In the Blood, How Two Outsiders Solved a Centuries-Old Medical Mystery and Took on the U.S. Army. Frank Hersey is the founder of Onsite Gas, founder, co-founder of Z Medica, the person who invented the product we're talking about. And Bart Gulong uh, is the co-founder and 
and former CEO of Z Medica, and the person who really told the world about this and and got it widely adopted. So um, I have to ask you guys this. I don't usually ask this question, but I'll start with you, Frank. You know, Charlie uh-huh. Barber is a master storyteller. Uh, and I'm just wondering, as I was reading this book, I thought, I wonder what it's like to be Frank and Bart and read about yourselves, you know, because he really, you know, I mean, he'll do 40 interviews with somebody and he's really kind of got your life story down here in a very interesting way. And he's tried to tell the world who you guys are as people. So I don't know, Frank, what, what's it like to read about yourself that way? Well, again, it's for real. That's for <laughs> sure. Be on this show and... uh other shows. Um, I just want to say one thing. I had someone ask me, um, why Quicklot? And I said, I told him, I said, you know, I think God just got tired of seeing people bleed to death. Mm. And it did. And through Bart and I, we uh, were able to, to fix a lot of that. No, that was my answer. That's a beautiful answer. So, Bart, you know, you're you're somebody who's the ups and downs of your life really make a fascinating story. Going back to Marietta College, college, and all the way through today, it makes uh, it's a great story, particularly in the hands of somebody like Charlie. I don't know what's it like to see it all written down like that. We don't live our lives as though they've been written down somewhere. It's uh, on the one hand a little embarrassing, <laughs> and uh, when uh, uh, you you made a very logical statement, and suddenly all of my friends, including Frank, have said to me, she, I had no idea you did this or that or that. Uh, And uh, often they say, I had no idea what you were going through to get this done. And uh, so it's kind of like uh, exposing yourself in the middle of the Times Square. But but on the other hand, uh, it's it's very fulfilling to know that uh, people know me completely, and just like anyone, you know, there there are ups and downs, but there are also good parts and bad parts, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, nobody nobody really sneaks into a phone booth and and comes out wearing a cape. The reality is, we all we all live our lives and just try to do the best for ourselves, our family, and the planet. Yeah. So, Charlie, speaking of phone booths, uh, and I actually will make this connection somehow, um, I feel like Frank fits into a pattern of Connecticut tinkerers. You know, this is a place that's kind of, it's it's small, it's a small state, but it's kind of famous for, I mean, there's some really, really famous people who invented or developed things here, but less famously, the Polaroid camera, the portable typewriter flavored toothpaste, the submarine, the can opener, and here's where I'm making the connection. The same Connecticut person invented the payphone and patented the type of baseball chest protector used by catchers today. Um, There's a way in which this is a place where people go down in their basements and put something on a mouse or or do something, and, and great things sometimes happen. And that clearly was a little bit of what drew you among the many dramatic elements of this story. Well, there's nothing else to do in Connecticut, so maybe that's part of it. <laughs> but no, this is part of what I'm realizing is my Connecticut underdog trilogy. So uh, I did a book that, that we talked about, Colin, called Citizen Outlaw, about a mm-hmm. reformed gangster in New Haven. Then I wrote a book about uh, a guy without medical credentials who in Middletown has created one of the largest clinics for Medicaid population in the country. So I think it's the the overcoming, uh, which then 
percolates out to the the people in the military and the Marines and the Navy that that stuck their neck out to endorse this. I think it's also particularly to bring it back to Frank. So Frank grew up very poor in a small town in South Carolina, and he grew up Catholic when it in the fifties when it was not okay to be Catholic where he was. And his father died rather young and, and uh, of, of, a, of a serious illness. And so Frank was sort of an orphan. Uh, he was actually brought to, not, not, not literally, but he, he was taken in by an uncle in, in the Hartford area at age 19. He had had a year at University of, of uh, South Carolina that had not gone well because of everything he was going through. And he was kind of reborn in, in Connecticut, and he's, he's remained, he's still, he, these guys have done really well. He still lives in the same rather modest house in West Hartford where he did the mouse experiment. And he loved Connecticut from the, from the very beginning. He loved uh, the seasons. He loved that he could be a Catholic here. He loved that um, there was industry, and he ended up working at Pratt & Whitney before he got his degree. And he worked on the NASA aspects of the, the the space shuttle, and he loved the educational opportunities, and and went to the University of Hartford for ten years at night school, and is now won an honorary degree doctorate from them uh, two weeks ago, and is largely endowed a hundred thousand square foot engineering and nursing building where our event is on Thursday. So there was it, it. I hadn't really thought about this. It's a it's a Connecticut nurtured this, and I think the other thing about Bard has lived a very colorful life, and Frank has lived a very steady life, and I think he gravitated towards the land of steady habits. So as they were going through trauma, in, in not blood trauma, but they were attacked by the military, Frank, Bart took the brunt of that because Frank kind of stayed back here in West Hartford. But um, the steadiness... You know, it's like every rock band. There's sort of the you know the yin and the yang, and so I think Bart's uh, outer, you know, projecting marketing self, but Frank's steadiness in the land of steady habits was part of their success. Yeah, and I think also Charlie, I want to stay with you just a second, but I want to get back to these guys before we wrap up. The other thing that strikes me is a lot of times it seems as though. The road to scientific process, the the journey between an idea and coming to market and being able to help people is just impossibly long, and sometimes for good reasons. Things could should be reviewed by the FDA and stuff like that. But I mean, we've just been through a pandemic where one of the most remarkable things in the history of the biosciences happened, right? I mean, these uh, mRNA vaccines, you know, got into our arms in this incredibly short period of time. So there's kind of a lesson there, right? If we want to do it, we can do it. Absolutely. And um, following the evidence at the end of the day, even the U.S. Army followed the evidence. And at the end of the day, the U.S. government found, you know, vaccines and the army did come round. And in 2008, this product was named the technical language hemostatic agent of choice in the entire military, which then opened up, Bart, the marketer can tell you, first responders all over the world. And they were working round the clock in Wallingford. And the company was sold. They sold it. A few years later, their one stipulation was that it stay in Connecticut, speaking of the land of steady habits, the company's in Wallingford now. 
And it was sold by a f- subsequent group for half a billion dollars a couple of years ago. So, first of all, um, if you live in Ansonia and you figured out how to solve uh, climate change, get in touch with Charlie Barber. He'll write a fourth book. It doesn't have to be a trilogy. Uh, and uh, Ben and and Matt, uh, talk. come talk to me first, okay? Because this is bigger than basketball sneakers. This is going to be a bigger movie than air. But uh, we have literally a minute and a half left. And so, um, so I'm going to quickly ask you guys uh, for a kind of a short answer thing about, I don't know, what, what you hope people take away from this story. I'm going to go with Frank first because I can tell Bart doesn't really like like to do short answers. So, Frank, uh, yeah, just in a few words. Yeah, uh, what I wish they'd take away is it can be done. Um, if you have a dream, follow that dream. Don't give up, and it will come true. I promise you. All right, Bart, you got 60 seconds. What's the moral of the story? It's very simple, Colin. The reason we're here and the reason Charlie wrote that book and the reason why we cooperated so easily the whole purpose here is to get more quick clot into more hands. We don't benefit financially from it anymore, but that doesn't matter. We still benefit spiritually from it. And if this book and potential movie gets more quick clot into the hands of the people who need it, then it's all just part of the same mission. Right. Well, you guys are, are, it's an amazing story. And you certainly were lucky in your writer. Uh, Charlie Barber is the author of In the Blood, How Two Outsiders Solved a Centuries-Old Medical Mystery and Took on the U.S. Army. I can't recommend it enough. It is a page-turner. All right. So we're done for the day. Uh, Thanks again to Gene Amatruda. And, of course, the amazing Lily Tyson will be back tomorrow with a show about invisibility. (laughs) I don't know why I'm laughing. (laughs) 